All right, good morning. Today is Wednesday, August 3, 2022. And this is going to be the first in a series um, with the new title, Apollonius of Teana and the Sage. The Sage uh, meaning Apollonius, Apollonius as an example of a wandering sage uh, sometimes called miracle worker, wonder worker by the Westerners, and um, a figure extremely similar to the the depiction of Jesus or the life of Christ, uh, with a very complex <laughs> um, historical um, academic um, environment uh, or legacy in the sense that uh, he appears to be a real person, um, but there's um, a nearly endless debate and disputation or dispute over nearly everything that is claimed about him, from the authenticity of elements of the original biography that is used by all the scholars, which is uh, the biography of by Philostratus, um, the life of Apollonius of Tyana. Uh, there's dispute about the historicity of that, which was written um, in the middle of the third century, it seems, while Apollonius, um, his Apollonius, and I'm not going to be perfect in my Greek translate uh, pronunciation, but I'll, I appreciate the uh, guidance on the uh, Greek translation or pronunciation. Uh, there's dispute all over the place, and there is um, academic disagreement all over the place, uh, where it's going to be very difficult to know um, with certainty. Um, nearly everything that's been said about him or written about him in the last 2,000 years. We're 1,800 years. So uh, there's a dispute whether he was born 3 B.C., just a few years before Yeshua, right? Or uh, another scholar, Maria Zielska from Poland, that um, is more modern than the translation of Kanibir that I'm going to work with from 1912, uh, her, she, she, with other additional material and her own biases, like everyone has, says no, he was born in the night in the forties or fifties. Um, uh, she believes he was born forty A.D., and a Roman historian said he was born also in the forties or fifties. In, in so, there's all sorts of dispute. Uh, from er at every point of the discussion, plus the fact that um, much of the biography uh, from Philostratus uh, seems to be um, nearly the same, or event uh, the elements in the life of Apollonius from the biography uh, in the third century. Much of it looks like um, a borrowing from the Gospels of uh, the life of Jesus. Then there was competition in Rome of that time, um, which is also up for dispute, between the growing influence of Christianity um, and uh, central government control. I'm not an expert on any of this, but... As I keep reading, I keep learning. And um, uh, was he... I mean, there were going to be people at that time who saw him as superior to Jesus. There were people at the time who saw the life of the Christian religion evolving as a threat to the Roman power base. There are people today, scholars, who say much of what Philostratus said was really borrowed or plagiarized or fraudulently made up. There are Christians, therefore, who didn't like him from uh, very early on. 
There were Christian writings against him. There are Christians today who would say he was a devil, devil worshiper, devil fellow. Um, so you've, he, he's a threat to the Christian. He's uh, a threat to some academics. We're talking about doing miracles, just like Yeshua is a threat to some <laughs> academics or some skeptics or some scientists, people who believe in science, and believe that that means that uh, you know paranormal miraculous is not possible because it defies the laws of physics, and they believe that only the laws of physics that they're aware of or that have been proven are real and true, and nothing else is real and true but what's been proven so far. Therefore, you know, gee, there's this he he is provocative. The life of uh, Apollonius is provocative to those who actually will say Jesus didn't exist. He's provocative to those who say Jesus did exist because he's sort of an alternate Christ figure. He was used or believed by theosophy to be the reincarnation of Jesus. Uh, in the Baha'i tradition, late, much later on, there's a whole lot of discussion of... Um, Apollonius and Yeshua and um, Baha'u'llah Baha himself. So he's a very, he's sort of a, a, a magnetic figure <laughs> throughout the, the last two millennia. Um, a point of argumentation for academics among themselves, Christians and academics between them, some other faiths or perspectives like theosophy and Baha'i uh, faith. Uh, very interestingly, so he's sort of um, the uh, shadow Christ or the, the, the alternative Christ figure, an alternative Christ figure, and uh, pushes a lot of people's buttons as a sage will, the right sage, you know. You know, Nishinata talked about um, the sage or the yani as like a jackfruit, um, dangerous and uh, inhospitable on the exterior, but sweet and soft and tender on the inner. Uh, you know, Yeshua saying, um, uh, be hot or cold, but don't be tepid, or there's something somewhere in the Bible, maybe it's Christian later, the value of being hot, <laughs> not, not lukewarm. Uh, the intensity of a, a Nityananda was... Um, an iconoclast, um, Buddha Dasa, I'm going to talk about tomorrow in the class on Weibo Sayada, was very much at odds with Monk, a great teacher in Thai Buddhism, uh, was a lie. I met him, or I saw he was at the Watson Mok in the south when I was there in 83. He was very much at odds with the Thai land Buddhist um, Orthodox, Orthodox tradition the established church of Buddhism in Thailand. So the true sage is um, a troublemaker or, or is trouble for established orthodoxy in religion and politics as well, in society, with the political, in the field of religion, with the um, conventional religious orthodoxy and uh, political religion uh, of a nation. And so the, the true sage um, doesn't fit into uh, control-based systems and speaks against them or avoids them and is either a threat or is just a um, renunciate from it all. And, and there's something to be said. There, there's no, you know, <laughs> there's no domestication of the true sage. Um, just like Yeshua. You know, he was against the religious orthodoxy of his time. He was a threat to some degree to the political um, class and the political establishments of his day, just like uh, Apollonius throughout the centuries, like Yeshua throughout the centuries. Uh, just like Gautama was to some degree in regards to the Brahmin orthodoxy of his day. So Gautama... Siddhartha was a threat to the Brahmin orthodoxy 2,500 years ago. 
Yeshua was a threat to the Jewish uh, Pharisaic, you know, Sanhedrin orthodoxy of his day. Philostratus was, I'm not, uh, Apollonius was somewhat of a threat to um, the, it's not clear whether he was, he was certainly a threat to the Christian, evolving Christian uh, organization of his day. And throughout the centuries, he's um, very much condemned by Christian academics. He's a threat to the intellectual, um, materialistic, you know, Charvaka academics who don't believe in a metaphysical existence and the YOLO, the YOLO materialist academics. So, um, you know, higher power is disruptive to dis- to darkness and distortion. I mean, uh, <laughs> this is just a, a, a sub-theme here, I see. So what I want to do today, there's so much to go through, and this is going to be a long series, actually. <clears throat> and, and I can't say he existed or not, and I can't say what's claimed he did is true or not, and I can't say that uh, there wasn't borrowing from the Gospels, stories of Yeshua, from in, in the life of Apollonius, um, written by Philostratus. I don't know. Um, but it's an interesting situation. And so, so okay, he pretty much was living in the first century A.D. So he's a contemporary of Yeshua. Uh, or, it, you know, it, it, there seems that, it seems that he really was a person. <clears throat> but, you know, there's argument about everything. So let's just presume he's a real person. <laughs> uh, it, let's just presume it. <laughs> and so this apparently real person named Apollonius of Tiana, was born in the first century AD. The biography that's called a novelistic biography uh, on the Wikipedia page, which seems to be a little heavy, uh, heavily borrowing or influenced by people who follow this scholar, Maria Zielska, <clears throat> who, may, who prob- may well be a Catholic and may well Polish Catholic, and may well have the bias uh, that uh, it, it couldn't have been, it couldn't be that he did what Yeshua did. So we'll see. But this Wikipedia page seems to be influenced by people who follow her, which means there's a sort of pro-Christian, anti <laughs> anti-legitimacy bias towards the claims uh, made of his life in. Philostratus in the, the life, and that that was written, compiled in the the early time of the third century. So okay, that biography was written at the request of this of an empress, Julia Domna, and you'd have to look at Roman politics in the third century to see some of why she had that done. Uh, it may be to make an alternative figure. Uh, to you know, we we have our own Christ figure, and uh, Christianity therefore would have its power nipped in the bud, perhaps, for the Roman political um, structure or leadership by uh, putting forward their own alternative um, Christ figure. That may be part of it, or not. I don't know. So we've got. Um, the basic account, this comment here, that Philostratus's account shaped the image of Apollonius for posterity, yeah. What he wrote in that account in the 3rd century is the basis of everybody's argument later on. <laughs> <coughs> Contains data from older writings that disappeared. Um, an excerpt preserved by a Christian father who hated... <laughs> Uh, Apollonius called uh, a fragment written by Apollonius called On Sacrifices, certain alleged letters, and there's a doubt about everything. Apollonius may have written some of the works. There was a claim to be a biography of Pythagoras because he understood himself as in the lineage of Pythagoras. There were uh, other biographical sources that Philostratus claims to have used. Uh, Secretary Maximus describing his activities in um, Aegea, Aegea in the Aos, and a 
biography by somebody else, Moragenes, Moragenes. The collection of letters, but some of them are false, letters of Apollonius. <clears throat> then <clears throat> the um, source called uh, of the diary of Damis, um, considered to be a, a companion or a student of Apollonius. Some people say that that was an invention. Some people say it was a real book forged by somebody else and naively used by Philostratus. <laughs> so some people would say there is no Damis and no book. Some people will say, yes, there was, but it was mistakenly used or <laughs> mistakenly used by Philostratus. All right. So the story, again, is very close to the, um, the Jesus story. Wandering teacher of philosophy, miracle worker, mainly active in Greece and Asia Minor, traveled um, south, Euro, southern Europe states, Italy, uh, Spain, North Africa, <clears throat> even in India, um, coming into Rome, stories of him coming into Rome. Um, and he was accused of being against the emperor. So he's, it's very interesting. If, he, if the story was concocted, to strengthen, to, to uh, strengthen the Roman power base, <laughs> the government, against the emerging Christianity. It's interesting that he was um, considered uh, to have defied the emperor directly. So he was not like a pro-imperial sage in the depiction, but the imperial court was using him to blunt the growth of Christianity? Who knows? So uh, he was um, accused of different things in the uh, account from Philostratus. And uh, Philostratus implies that upon his death he underwent heavenly assumption. So uh, like a resurrection, right, an ascension. Okay, so very, very similar. And we'll, we, what I'm going to do this today is look at some of the introductions to his life. And that's basically historicity or the historical the basis of the uh, historical basis of the biography. Uh, the biography is uh, historically accurate to what degree? It, it's really going to be uh, indefinable. <laughs> the conclusions are basically... Uh, nearly all of this is um, um, impo unverifiable, um, and there'll be strong arguments on both sides of every claim. And so they're saying here, how much of this can be accepted as historical truth depends largely on the extent to which modern scholars trust Philostratus, and whether they believe in the reality of Damis. <laughs> Some scholars say he never went to Western Europe, and he was unknown there. Uh, she was from Syria, Julia Domna, um, and said that she couldn't have met him, she couldn't have known of him. They uh, believe that she commissioned Philostratus to write the biography. Where he is um, exalted as the fearless sage, uh, to make his legend great, um, so as to... Um, be sort of a figure for a, a, a rallying point for the people, uh, like a state religion. Like he was the state religion sage, um, alternate choice competitor to, the, to Jesus and the evolving uh, Christian tradition or Christian church in the, at that time. So there is this Adana inscription, 3rd or 4th century A.D., that um, I said last time, translated as this man named after Apollo and shining forth from Tayana extinguished the faults of men. The tomb in Tayana received his body, but in truth heaven received him so that he might drive out the pains of men or drive pains from among men. And so another translation, <laughs> the guy said, sure enough, Apollonius was born in Tayana but the full truth is that he was a heaven-sent sage and healer, a new Pythagoras. So, um, all sorts of people have all sorts of opinions on the 
historical accuracy even of that inscription from a stone um, in the in that area in uh, in some of the in portion of Turkey from the third or the fourth century AD right I mean somebody could have had that commissioned somebody who commissioned like Julia Domna the uh, biography could have commissioned a, a stone inscription that was either accurate or fraudulent as well. All right. Uh, I don't even know whether it's uh, academic agree majority opinion that he really existed. But it's an interesting matter. <laughs> it, it may be uh, majority um, fancy, fantasy or not. I just don't know. But there were people... Um, um, doing what he did, a wandering sage philosopher who were against the orthodoxies of that time in Asia Minor, let's say, the Near East, um, about 2,000 years ago, 1,700 years ago, there was a lot going on. A lot of uh, sages with uh, mystic perspectives and some really were doing magic. So... Um, There is um, the discussion of his miracles, and this is all just bare-bones introductory. Uh, there's the story, Philostratus implies on one occasion Apollonius had ESP, <laughs> book 8, when Emperor Domitian was murdered on 18 September 96, meaning uh, zero, the year 96. Apollonius was said to have witnessed the event in Ephesus about midday, on the day it happened in Rome, and told those present, quote, Take heart, gentlemen, for the tyrant has been slain this day. Now again, <clears throat> if this was, if the biography was commissioned to put him forward as a competitor to Jesus, I'll just say Jesus sometimes, if you don't mind, uh, a competitor, um, it's, it's sort of not, <laughs> it seems a little contradictory to have him cheer on the murder of a Roman emperor if it was a later Roman emperor or empress who commissioned uh, the putting forward of him as a state-sponsored uh, sage. So, okay, both Philostratus and the historian Cassius De Dio that uh, Zilka, Zilka follows report the incident probably on the basis of an oral tradition so there's an oral tradition that uh, Apollonius foresaw or, or was psychically aware of what was happening miles away in Rome that day. Both state that the philosopher welcomed the deed as praiseworthy tyrannicide. So the killing of a tyrant. Uh, and again, the, the sage, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a line in uh, Dao Te Ching, something like the, the, the Zhenren, uh, the man of the way, um, sees all people as straw as, as straw dogs. <laughs> uh, that was a, for Chinese sacrifice. They used straw dogs rather than real dogs later on. And this is the evolution of Chinese court sacrifice ritual. Uh, in the sense that the, I think that uh, this is from Lao Tzu, that, that the sage, the Zhenren, sees the... Um, the inviolability of karmic law, uh, sentimentalism, is not uh, of, of enlightened awareness. Uh, the enlightened ones are not sentimental. They understand shit happens. They understand that uh, there's crime and punishment, that there's karma and karmic return, that uh, there's a certain um, <clears throat> um, impersonality to um, pers human existence. The impersonality meaning we're we're subject to karmic law. We're subject to causation, and uh, shit happens, and that's just the way it is. And how you feel about something doesn't necessarily change the truth of a matter. And one must make a distinction between uh, what appear you know, gain, gaining moving towards a re, uh, an objective truth like karmic law, understanding it is. 
whether you like it or not. Um, people get trouble whether you feel sorry for them or not. Um, law will be observed whether you like it or not. Um, and personal human sentiment is uh, apart from um, the operation of, of um, soul evolution and and uh, the law of uh, phenomenal phenomenal process. <clears throat> uh, life um, has its, you know, we're we're and that's part of the whole matter is that we're living in a system uh, where there are laws, metaphysical laws. And uh, whether you like it or not, or whether you know it or not, it is. They are. And whether you like it or not, whether we, we know it or not, we have purpose here. And so you either, you know, you're, 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 you're either polarizing or you're depolarizing. You're either learning and growing or you're getting more stuck. Change is constant whether you like it or not. Uh, certain metaphysical laws we are subject to whether we like it or not. And that's how I read this comment of the Jenren sees all men as straw dogs. There is there is a certain <clears throat> um, unsentimentality to uh, the beings that I've seen that, that seem to be very highly evolved. They care for each individual, but it is not sentimental. And they have a sense that it's all perfect whatever happens because it's lawful and we're under law. And it's karmic law, the law of causality. And uh, if you're in hell, you got yourself there. And if you're in heaven, you got yourself there. And they may feel some pity for the one in hell and uh, recognize, you know, respect the one who got to heaven. <clears throat> but uh, sentiment is secondary. And um, Rob was saying this also about those that are positive seeing those that are stuck. Um, they do what we do, what we can, but we go our own way because you the wolves that are stuck are remaining, are choosing to remain stuck or uh, distorted or in pain and confusion. And unfortunately, that's it. And then we must move on. It's something like that. Anyway, so, okay. <laughs> uh, this There's a section on the Wikipedia page, Journey to India, <clears throat> saying that uh, Philostratus devoted two and a half of the eight books in his life to the description of a journey to India. And you see, even this page says, description of a journey of his hero to India. So clearly, whoever put this section into the Wikipedia page has the bias that Philostratus is making the story up. His hero. Not the man, but his hero, Philostratus' hero. So, <clears throat> there's a bias here in the Wikipedia page, obviously. And everybody's got their bias. I have a bias, too. My bias is that I hope he was a real guy. <laughs> and I hope he did what they said he did. That's all. That doesn't mean I hope he is a competitor to Yeshua. I don't hope they're competitors. I hope he really did what they, what Philostratus claimed he did. Because I know that these things can be done. You know, like Nietzsche and said, everything's possible. Of course. Of course. If you don't know that, you don't know... You don't know God. You don't know unity. If you know God, if you know unity to some degree, you know that, that anything's possible. I've seen miracles. Absolutely. It's real. Very real. So, just like <laughs> Autobiography of a Yogi, Paramahansa Yogananda talking about, everybody knows <laughs> cities are very doable, magical powers. So I, my bias is that I hope he's a real guy and really did what Philostratus claims he did. Okay. But I don't know the whole book, so maybe something I wish he didn't do. But I, I like him, and I hope he's a real guy. But maybe he isn't. Maybe it's all fantasy. I don't know. In any case, according to Philostratus's life, en route to the Far East, Apollonius reached Hierapolis Bambis, which is Mambij in, um, in Aleppo, in Syria, where he met Damas, Damas, a native of the city who became his lifelong companion. Now, Yeshua didn't have a companion, exactly. He had apostles. So, if this is a full borrowing from the Gospels, Life of Jesus, um, it's set quite differently, where it's the sage and his student, not 
the Savior and his circle of 12, or 10, or whatever. So, that's interesting. Then, it goes on, Pythagoras, whom Neo-Pythagoreans regarded as an exemplary sage, was believed also to have traveled to India. So then, of course, people who have the bias that this is a fantasy story um, will say, Hence, such a feat made Apollonius look like a good Pythagorean who spared no pains in his efforts to discover the sources of oriental piety and wisdom. (laughs) Clearly, it's a white man or woman who wrote this section. Oriental piety. Oh, yes. Uh, The Buddha as an oriental pietist. Oh, yes, he's very pietous. Mm -mm -mm. So, many people, you know, also this whole thing was... The first translation, the, the one that I'm going to work with, mainly F. Cunnabir, was 1912. So there's a lot of um, archaic English um, to be found here in the different people's write-up <laughs> of uh, the history. And uh, there's also a huge... I mean, <laughs> there are very few Western spiritually-oriented New Age people, and even Christian, Jewish, uh, Islamic people, who really know anything much about Buddhism and Hinduism. They really don't. They don't care. They don't care. So, fine. So they call it Oriental piety. All right. So, in any case, Pythagoras was supposed to have gone to India. The story says that um, Apollonius went to to India. goes on. As some details in Philostratus' account of the Indian adventure seem incompatible with known facts, modern scholars, that this is where you get to Zilka, Zilska, she's the modern scholar that a lot of people here are drawing from to, to take out what they consider fantasy. Modern scholars are inclined to dismiss the whole story as a fanciful fabrication, but not all of them rule out the possibility that the Tainian or that Apollonius, Apollonius actually did visit India. All right. So they say, some people say it's a total fantasy, and other people say, no, no, it could have happened. Philostratus in the story, and you see just the way this is written, Philostratus has him meet Froetes, Froates, has him meet, meaning he f- fancifully uh, uh, fictionalizes the story where he meets this king, or he records the fact that he did ca- meet. Who knows? Maybe maybe it is fantasy. I, I wish it wasn't, but I, that's my bias. <laughs> but it may be, or it seems to be. So, uh, in the story, he meets Froetes, Indo-Parthian king of Taxila, city located in ancient northern India, northern ancient India, in Pakistan, 46 AD. And the description that Philostratus provides of Taxila comports with modern archaeological excavations, at the ancient site of Taxila. So, either Philostratus did his history, or there's some truth to the story that uh, Apollonius was in northern India. Then, what seemed to be independent evidence showing that Apollonius was known in India has now been proven a forgery, according to some. <clears throat> in two Sanskrit texts quoted by a, another person, Sanskritist, Vidu Shekra Bhattacharya in 1943, in this text uh, from 1943, University of Calcutta Press, uh, taken in by a forgery. He appears as Apollonia in one together with Damas called Damisa. It's claimed that these two were Western yogis who later on were converted to the correct Advaita philosophy, Advaita Vedanta. So it says Bhattacharya in 1943. Some have believed that these Indian sources derive their information from a Sanskrit translation of Philostratus's work, <laughs> which would have been, and this person writes, which would have been a most uncommon and amazing occurrence. Uh, but you see, Bhattacharya, this person claiming to find references to Apollonius and Damas in Sanskrit text, could have read the Kanapir translation that came out years, you know, 30 years earlier. And just wanted to get in on the action. Who knows? These, this is just the way it is, right? Here, the, the, this is not a group committed to truth. This 
planetary race at all. So, okay, uh, it could be that Bhattacharya read Connie Beer's translation and just wanted to get in on the action. It could be that <clears throat> uh, there was a Sanskrit translation of the original Philostratus life of Apollonius. Uh, or there's in really independent confirmation of the historicity of the journey to India. Then, in 1995, it says, only in 1995 were the passages in the Sanskrit texts proven to be interpolations by a late 19th century forger. Okay, so now, this is coming from a, a British nihilist called Simon Swain, who wrote a book called Apollonius in Wonderland, in a book called Ethics and Rhetoric. These people are much more intellectual than me, but they also happen to have some limited view, I think. So, okay, Mr. Simon Swain, who probably has a strong desire to prove this a forgery, writes... Uh, in 1995 that he finds some proof that the Sanskrit texts claimed by Bhattacharya were interpolations by a late 19th century forger. Okay, so there's a guy in the late 19th century putting in stories into Sanskrit from life of Apollonius, from Philostratus, from six, seven, eight, 1,700, 1,600 years earlier? By what? A Sanskrit translation of the history, the life of, Philost of Apollonius? Well, Connie Beer's book didn't come out yet. So how did somebody forge or put into the Sanskrit an account of Apollonia um, before uh, in English... Was, was Canabir the first translation? No, there actually was an earlier one. And so, <laughs> who's, who, who's screwing who? Well, who can say? And so, uh, you get a sense of how, um, how complicated this is. So let me jump out of this Wikipedia and uh, move into... The website called mountainman.com.au, Australian fellow, who uh, presents excerpts from the uh, Connie Beer translation in 1912 in the Loeb Classics Library. And this guy has a bias too, which is closer to my own, which is um, <laughs> that... that <laughs> um, that Apollonius was a real person and really did or surely could do, could have been doing what is claimed, the miracles he claimed, the, they are, that are claimed that he did. Um, this guy even has this view, I'm not sure what his name is, <clears throat> that rather than <clears throat> the, uh, the Apollonius story biography as a fabricated competitor to... Yeshua's life in the Gospels, Yeshua's life as we find it in the Gospels actually was modeled after the life of Apollonius. <clears throat> How about that? <laughs> and I'm sure there are books about that. And that may actually be referenced in the, in the Theosophical books. So whose biography is copying whose? <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> pulling back down to earth, from the preface by James Loeb himself, September 1, 1912, 110 years ago, he wrote, <clears throat> and you can see how things were before World War I, James Loeb wrote, In an age when the humanities are being neglected more than perhaps than at any time since the Middle Ages, they're even more neglected today, and when men's minds are turning more than ever before to the practical and material, it does not suffice to make pleas, requests, however eloquent and convincing, for the safeguarding and further enjoyment of the greatest heritage of the past. <clears throat> I mean, it doesn't, it's, it, at this time, with the materialist tendency of humanity, it's not enough to help humanity to simply ask 
that please let's safeguard the the greatest writings of the past, which is what he did in the Loeb Classic Library. He goes on, <clears throat> means must be found to place these treasures within the reach of all who care for the finer things of life. The mechanical and social achievements of our day must not blind our eyes to the fact that, in all that relates to man, his nature and aspirations, we have added little or nothing to what has been so finely said by the great men of old. <clears throat> and that's that's been my own personal um, focus or devotion in terms of intellectual content primarily for 40 for 45 years since I was about 15 in high school mainly um, Eastern you know Taoist Buddhist Advaita Vedanta Hindu um, Greek classical to some degree <clears throat> and and then Western metaphysical and transpersonal uh, to 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 find to you know rightly learn from uh, greater minds than my own, and there are those who are greater minds than our own, and it's really useful because this is what you know. You'll take your humanity with you. You won't take your devices with you. The devices will be left to rust and rot, but the the quality of mind uh, we develop we do take with us. And that's uh, truly um, of greater importance than um, the physical uh, environment, the the physical um, attachments we have, um, even um, our function is, is secondary to what we are and how we become. So anyway, that's his intro- that's his um, <clears throat> preface. Uh, I want to move to um, Connie Beer's English translation introduction, or his introduction to his translation. His perspective is um, not as um, not as critical as Zielska, it seems. And he's not, um, I don't think he sees this as any conflict with um, Christianity or Yeshua. Where she may be a Catholic, uh, he's a classicist, kind of beer. <clears throat> he has a nice face also. So, Connie Beer, F.C. Connie Beer, uh, introduction to his English translation, wrote, just a second, what's the time? 42. I'll try to read this through without commentary. Commentary: The life of Apollonius of Tiana has once or been once translated in its entirety into English as long ago as the year 1811 by an Irish clergyman of the name of E. Berwick. It is to be hoped, therefore, that the present translation will be acceptable to the English reading public, for there is in it much that is very good reading, and it is lightly written. Of its author, Philostratus, we do not know much apart from his own works, from from which we may gather that he was born in the island of Lemno, about the year 172 of our era, that he went to Athens as a young man to study rhetoric, and later on to Rome. Here, in Rome, he acquired reputation as a sophist, an argumenter, and was drawn into what we may call the salon of the literary and philosophic Empress Julia Domna, wife of Septimius Severus. She put into his hands certain memoirs of Apollonius, the sage of Tiana, who had died in extreme old age nearly 100 years before the reign of the Emperor Nerva, and she, Empress Julia, begged him, Philostratus, to use them, these memoirs, for the composition of a literary life of the sage in question. Literary life (laughs) is uh, some fictionalization allowed, perhaps. These memoirs had been composed by a disciple and companion of Apollonius named Damis. So you see, uh, Canabir 
is uh, accepting the claim of Philostratus that indeed he got the memoir from the Empress who really gave him papers of a companion. So this is in accord with the Philostratus story of how it came, how the life story, the biography came to be. These memoirs had been composed, these memoirs given to Philostratus, had been composed by a disciple and companion of Apollonius named Demas, native of the city of Nineveh, whose style, Philostratus says, like that of most Syrian Greeks, was heavy and wanted in polish. <laughs> Needed polishing. Besides these memoirs, Philostratus used for his work a history of the career of Apollonius at Aegae, 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 written by, like Aegean, Aegae, written by an admirer of the name of Maximus. And again, these are the, this is the, these are the claims, he's repeating the claims of Philostratus regarding the origin of the um, documentary material he used in the writing of the biography, or literary life. He also used many of the letters of Apollonius which were in circulation. His collection of these agreed partly, but not wholly, with those which are preserved to us and translated below. Right, So there's some way of verifying what Philostratus is claiming he's using to write the life story. He tells us further that the Emperor Hadrian had a collection of these letters in his villa at Antium. Philostratus also possessed various treatises of Apollonius, which have not come down to us. Beside making use of the written sources here enumerated, Philostratus had traveled about, not only to Tiana, where there was a temple specially dedicated to the cult of Apollonius, but to other cities where the sage's memory was held in honor in order to collect such traditions of the sage as he still found current. So he's repeating Philostratus' claims of the origins of the texts he used and of his own <clears throat> uh, process in writing the life story where he traveled and there were temples <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> in in places or a cult of Apollonius. Personally, again, my bias is I hope it's all true, <laughs> but I accept it isn't, and I don't like lies either. From these sources, then, the work before us was drawn, for although Philostratus also knew the four books of a certain Moragenes upon Apollonius, <clears throat> he tells us he paid no attention to them because they displayed an ignorance of many things which concerned the sage. The learned empress seems never to have lived to read the works of Philostratus, or her, this book, for it was not dedicated to her and cannot have been published before the year 217. Okay. It's been argued that the work of Damis never really existed. So you see these arguments have been going on for over a hundred years, and that he was a mere man of straw, invented straw man, like a straw dog, invented by Philostratus. This view was adopted, the view that, that, that there's no Damus and it was a fraud uh, literary device uh, put in by Philostratus. This view was adopted as recently as the year 1910, and more recently by Zielka, Zielska and others, I would imagine, by a Professor Brigg in his history on the origins of Christianity. Uh-uh. Meaning, is he a Christian? But it seems unnecessarily skeptical. It is quite true that Philostratus puts into the mouth of the sage, on the authority of Damas, conversations and ideas which, as they recur in the lives of the sophists of Philostratus, so he wrote other lives, I guess, can hardly have been reported by Damas. So some are clearly... Um, not possibly reported. But, he goes on, because he resorted to this literary trick, okay, it can hardly have been invented as late as the year 217 when the life was completed and given to the literary world. So what does this mean? <laughs> he resorted, so so Canabir is acknowledging that Philostratus likely did resort to the literary trick of putting in a figure called Damas who maybe wasn't, may not have been real, or 
some of what uh, is claimed that Damus said uh, or observed that uh, Apollonius said and did was a literary trick, then Conibir says, it can hardly have been invented. What, the literary trick couldn't have been invented as late as uh, 217? It was invented earlier? Why would that not allow this to be a full fantasy? I don't know. So anyway, he goes on. It's rather to be supposed that Damus himself was not altogether a credible writer, but one who, like the so-called aretalogi of that age, set himself to embellish the life of his master, to exaggerate his wisdom and supernatural powers. If so, more than one of the striking stories told by Philostratus may have already stood in the pages of Damus. <laughs> who can say? So you see, there's a lot of uh, dishonesty here, right? <laughs> right from the last, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's the, the poverty, the paucity of honesty here, all over the place. However this is to be, Cundebir continues, the evident aim of Philostratus is to rehabilitate the reputation of Apollonius and defend him from the charge of having been a charlatan or wizard addicted to evil magical practices. That's claimed by the Christians. And today, to some degree, by the materialist Charvaka academics, the nihilists. This accusation had been leveled against the sage during his lifetime by a rival sophist Euphrates, and not long after his death by the author already mentioned, Moragenes. So he's already being, uh, and, and not only by the Christians, by others who feel he's, you know, black magic or a fraud. The charlatan or a black magician. Those are the options, I think. Unfortunately, the orations of Euphrates have perished, and we know little of the work of Moragenes, Origen, the Christian father, in his work against Celsus, contra Celsus, written about the year 240, informs us that he had read it, and that it, meaning uh, some of these other works about uh, criticizing Apollonius. So Origen says he read it, and that it attacked Apollonius as a magician addicted to sinister practices. Everybody's threatened, you know, it's a lot of big turf war. You know, human history is like the history of turf wars. <laughs> everybody's got a turf, and everybody's defending it or an attacking, or staying on the attack as their defense of their turf. It, once they have social power, not everybody, but clearly people with social power and position, uh, do in, in indefinite turf war, it seems to me. All right, so they call him an attack... And a, a magician addicted to sinister practices. It's also certain, he goes on, uh, that the accusations of Euphrates, Euphrates were of a similar tendency, and we only need to read a very few pages of, the, of this work of Philostratus to see that his chief interest is to prove to the world that these accusations were ill-founded, and that Apollonius was a divinely inspired sage and prophet, and a reformer along Pythagorean lines of the pagan religion. It's possible that some of the stories told by Byzantine writers of Apollonius, notably by John Tzetzes, derived from Moragenes. Moragenes. And so, the turf wars are endless. The Christians attack the non-Christians. The scientists attack the religious the religions attack the other religions, uh, and the non-religious, and uh, the academics attack uh, non-academics and the religions, and the materialists attack the spiritualists. Uh, some spiritualists attack each other. And so you can say, I'm attacking everybody too, but I just uh, <laughs> chuckle as well. Uh, so, okay, um, Philostratus is defending Apollonius against... Um, see, so again, right, Apollonius, there's over a hundred years between the death of Apollonius or so, about a hundred years, between his death and the write-up of the life uh, by Philostratus. In that time, um, it's pretty clear that, it, it, that that's where you get this idea that he really was a guy, because... Uh, before there was a, you know, uh, 
imperial makeover. <laughs> if some portion of Philostratus was an imperial makeover uh, to compete with evolving Christianity in the third century, there was already much to work with from the second century, meaning the hundred years after he did, the century after his death, after Apollonius' death. So if he died somewhere near 100 AD, uh, and the book was written somewhere near 220 AD, there's 120 years, 100 years of history-making or myth-making or people talking about him uh, before there was an, any kind of imperial makeover, if there was. But then you have later people <laughs> who have their own biases, who cherry-pick certain sources that are pro, you know, that are pro or anti. In any way, it goes on. The story of the life of Apollonius as narrated by Philostratus is briefly as follows. And now is a brief life. Let me just see. I don't know. I'll try to finish this today, but I'm not sure if I can. I just can't control my commentaries. Uh, the story of the life of Apollonius is narrated by Philostratus as briefly as follows. He was born towards the beginning of the Christian era at Tiana in Cappadocia. His birth was attended according to popular tradition with miracles and portents, same as Jesus, same as Gautama, same as Krishna. At the age of 16, he set himself to observe in the most rigid fashion the most monastic rule ascribed to Pythagoras, renouncing wine, rejecting the married estate, refusing to eat any sort of flesh or meat, and in particular condemning the sacrifice of animals to the gods, which was in the ancient world furnished the occasion, at any rate for the poor people, of eating meat. That's how they ate meat, from animal, you know, priestly animal sacrifice. That was their meat, the sort just for the poor people. So he was against all that, like the life of Jesus, sort of um, goes to uh, austere hard training from a young age. He goes on, For we must not forget that in antiquity hardly any meat was eaten which had not previously been consecrated by sacrifice to a god, and that subsequently the priest was the butcher of a village, and the butcher the priest. <laughs> more, few, more than a few religions uh, keep that tradition today. Like other votaries of the Neopythagorean philosophy or discipline, uh, Apollonius went without shoes or only wore shoes of bark. He allowed his hair to grow long, never let a razor touch his chin, and he took care to wear on his person nothing but linen, for it was accounted by him, as by Brahmins, an impurity to allow any dress made of the skin of dead animals to touch the person, meaning the body. And so this is Neopythagorean, sounding a heck of a lot like uh, Hindu Brahmin. Before long, and Pythagoras was muchly influenced by uh, Hinduism, it seems. Before long, he set himself up as a reformer, and betaking himself to the town of Aji, Ag, he took up his abode in the temple of Asclepius, where he rapidly acquired such a reputation for sanctity that sick people flocked to him and asked him to heal them. Sounds like Nityananda. On attaining his majority... At the death of his father and mother, he gave the greater part of his patrimony to his elder brother and what was left to his poor relations. He then set himself to spend five years in complete silence, traversing, it would seem, Asia Minor, in all directions, but never opening his lips. And there are actually many interesting um, stories in the Philostratus life of his silence and um, intercounter with people. Going on, the more than Trappist vow of silence, which he thus enforced upon himself, seems to have further enhanced his reputation for holiness, and his mere appearance on the scene was enough to hush the noise of warring factions in the cities of Cilicia and Pamphylia. If we may believe his biographer, he professed to know all languages without having learned them, to know the inmost thoughts of men, to understand the language of birds and animals, and to have power of predicting the future. He also remembered his former incarnation, for he shared the Pythagorean belief for the or of the migration of human souls from body to body, called reincarnation, transmigration they used to call it, both of animals and of human beings. 
He preached a rigid asceticism and condemned all dancing and other diversions of the kind. He would carry no money on his person and recommended to others to spend their money in the relief of the poorer classes. So he was a real ascetic. And, um, you know, like Gautama, like Nityananda, right? At that, at that level of renunciation, as others did, but not so many. And claimed to have those psychic powers, uh, which others may have too. He visited Persia and India, where he consorted with the Brahmins. He subsequently visited Egypt. That's where you get this discussion of Atanor and um, Egyptian hermeticism. He went up the Nile in order to acquaint himself with the precursors of the monks of the Tibaid, called in those days the gymnosophists, or naked philosophers. This is a gymnosophist is a term uh, sometimes for um, sadhus in India. They, they naked philosophers. Sophist, uh, as Sophia, as a goddess of wisdom. Gymno is the root of gymnastics. Um, I don't know if it's naked. I don't know if gymno is the Greek root of naked, but it's certainly, uh, they translate here, naked philosophers, naked naked sadhus. The, the, the sages, you know, the, the, I don't know if they're a sage, right? They're just a sadhu. They're a, uh, of, the, of certain renunciate traditions in India or certain, maybe Jains even. So he consorted with the Brahmins in, so goes the story, in Persia and India, visited Egypt, went up the Nile, and uh, got familiar with, um, it seems, the Indic yogic philosophy. Visited the cataracts of the Nile, returning to Alexandria, held long conversations with Vespasian and Titus, soon after the siege and capture of Jerusalem by the latter. Because, yeah, I mean, when was he born? If he was born in 3 BC then he might have been around in Jerusalem for the sack of Jerusalem or the burning of whatever, the, the temple and all that, in, I think, 70 AD or so. Again, I'm not excellent in all this history, but um, that could fit where uh, he was around after the siege and capture of Jerusalem by the latter, by Titus, I guess. He had a few years before, in the course of a visit to Rome, incurred the wrath of Nero, whose minister, Tigellinius, however, was so intimidated by him as to set him at liberty. So you'd have to see, in the writings of Nero, is there any discussion of somebody named Apollonius, right? I don't know. After the death of Titus, he was again arrested, this time by the emperor Domitian, as a fomenter of sedition. <laughs> yeah. If you have too much power and too many people like you, and you're too righteous or moral, you're totally a threat to wicked human authority. Wicked human authority has been the name of the game for uh, millennia here. So then he was uh, arrested by Domitian for sedition, acquitted, died at an advanced age in the, in the reign of Nerva, who befriended him. And according to popular tradition, he ascended bodily to heaven, appearing after death to certain persons who entertained doubts about future life, meaning resurrection and um, reappearance, just like Jesus. Towards the end of the 3rd century, when the struggle between Christianity and the decadent and decadent paganism had reached its last and bitterest stage, it occurred to some of the enemies of the new religion, Christianity, meaning the enemies of Christianity, to set up Apollonius, to whom temples and shrines had been erected in various parts of Asia Minor, as a rival to the founder of Christianity. So even Cunnabir is saying that from his view, yeah, um, Christianity was growing, paganism had come to decadent, the Roman power of the 3rd century had its own challenges. Uh, those, some of those who were against the rise in Christianity, which would be like other religions, the pagan other traditions, as well as elements of the uh, Roman know, political orthodox uh, elite or, or power center, would want to set up Apollonius as a rival to Jesus, be working on um, the real myths and stories and temples and cults and traditions that had grown up around him in the last century. That, that makes sense. 
the many miracles, he goes on, the many miracles which were recorded of Apollonius, and in particular his eminent power over evil spirits or demons, made him a formidable rival in the minds of pagans to Jesus Christ. So yes, clearly, uh, clearly there's a lot of agreement <laughs> among the academics that, indeed, uh, the life of Apollonius was set up um, in contrast to Jesus uh, as a... Um, stop-gap measure as a plug in the dike of the dam or the uh, on-rushing torrent of growing Christianity in the 3rd century. Okay, that makes sense. Actually, we're going to have to end here because uh, time goes fast and I talk a lot. So, okay, so even Conabir is acknowledging uh, yeah, there was a political motive for um, embellishment of life of Apollonius by Philostratus in his story, in his, his, his literary life of Apollonius. And there was competition between pagans and uh, the growing Christian adherents and the uh, Roman political power was sort of in the middle or over, over you know, was the ruling power with, uh, of the polity um, within which these competing forces were, um, were struggling for power to some degree or were interacting, paganism versus evolving Christianity. And so I think we're going to have to pick it up next time in the middle of Conibir's introduction to his translation um, at the paragraph that starts... Um, uh, and a certain Hierocles, Hierocles, um, and so, uh, and then you get, as Christianity grew and paganism fell, uh, you have concerted attacks on the story of Apollonius and the cult of Apollonius and paganism by the growing Christian church and their fathers, and, um, We'll look at that next time. So this is the basis, and how much is true, how much is not, I don't know. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> so anyway, I hope this is interesting to you. It's certainly interesting to me, and um, I hope it's helpful. So it means something. We'll figure out as we keep going what it means. Uh, take good care of yourself. See you next time, and good night.